start with prayers. So the first verse, um, the opening prayers, we'll sing once, and then the second one we sing three times. And the English is on there, but we're singing in Tibetan. Um, and then, so for the hand mudra, if you want to do that, cross the pinkies. Left side right, right over left. Doesn't matter. Cross pinkies, then grab them with your thumbs. Just the pinkies. And then put the ring fingers together. The backs of the ring fingers. Then take the pointer fingers and grab the middle fingers. It can be funky for a while. <laughs> yeah. Almost, yeah, you're gonna, so you're gonna grab those fingers. With those. Yeah. And then those middle fingers come straight up and the backs are together. Yep. And then grab your middle fingers with your fingers. Yeah. Now this is. Yeah. So this. Oh, so another of my have Yeah, this one. This one's for the opening prayer, so we're requesting teachings and we're giving an offering. And you can picture this as you're offering the whole world. So according to Buddhism, this represents the whole world. So you can think of it like that. Okay. And Lauren's now, our, um, our chant leader. Yeah, and then you can... Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's okay. You can also um, put the hands in prayer. Lauren can show you the mudra. Oh, almost. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, there's YouTube videos. Sashi Puki Chuching
go right into a meditation. So you can sit however you like, cushion or chair. Eyes can be open or closed. meditation is really just to arrive in the room, let your mind arrive. So very basic, sitting up nice and tall. And then to start, we're just going to start to relax the physical body. And do that by bringing the awareness to the crown of the head. And then you're just going to slowly scan down your body at your own pace. And let your awareness release tension and holding wherever you find it. So there's no rush. You can stay in one spot if there's some tightness holding there. You don't, in meditation posture, relaxation is key. You don't feel like you're holding your breath or you have to hold really still. Your body's going to move as you're breathing and it's okay. as much as you can, keeping your mind just focused on the physical sensations in the body. Not thinking about them or talking to yourself about them, labeling them, just pure awareness. And once you scan down your body, then start to scan back up. Body. 
And you can feel the breath as it moves your whole physical form. And as you're feeling the breath, get the sense that you're open and receptive to whatever teaching you need to hear tonight. Not trying to decide what that is. Just being open. time your mind wants to jump off of the breath, just gently come back. For the last few moments of the meditation, find the breath really clearly and brightly. Your most clear focus that you can manage right now. Ending the meditation on a high note. And once you have that clear, bright focus, then releasing the meditation and expanding your focus to fill your whole body and then the room around you becoming aware of the people in the room temperature and sounds and when you're ready you can start to move and open your eyes Jason. Jason. Okay, Heather. I think you know these guys. <laughs> I'm guessing you're friends with them. Lauren. Hi. And this is Mike. And that's Dale and Dan. Ben. Okay, so we are in week two of the 10-week course, Escaping Uncertainty, a Study of Buddhist Ethics. Wednesday, September 19th, 
So there's only two of you that are going to be able to answer the review questions <laughs> from last week. This is online. That's true. Maybe one of you guys already know. <laughs> um, okay, so class two, which is tonight, is going to be an outline of the Sutra on Discipline. Okay, so review from last week. Um, what is nirvana? It doesn't have to be the technical defi definition. Um, Permanent cessation of negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. Do you know the second part of it? Due to. Like what happens before that? Oh, due to the direct Hello. perception of evidence? Mm hmm. Or being able to put it out. Mm hmm. Due to the, I think it's like technically the individual analysis. Yeah. Yeah, escaping from. Um, basically having bad thoughts, unhappiness, um, being dissatisfied all the time, that sort of thing. And so if you're escaping from samsara, what do we talk about is the samsara um, caused by? Kind of, yeah. Always done the review question. Our impure... Yep. Yeah. Impure... Body? It's caused... Yeah, basically it's caused by our bad thoughts. And yeah, our body is samsara as well. So we're escaping that. Um, okay, and then... Does anyone remember the three extraordinary trainings? Soltrum, Sudhavid. First. First, uh-huh. And what was that one? What did that one mean? Do you remember? Yeah, it's like the, what Geshe Soldrum's name means. Yeah, it's um like good ethics, right? Uh-huh. Yep, so the first one's extraordinary training of ethical living. Mm -hmm. The second one Extraordinary Training Meditation. Yep. Anybody know the Tibetan? Ting and Zen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the third one. Extraordinary training wisdom. Yes. And that one is Sherab. Okay, then last review question. What is the meaning of Vinaya? I know it's linked to Soldier. Mm-hmm. It's linked to, it is linked to ethics. It is, but um, what's the meaning of the word? That is what that is what it does though. So the meaning of the word is discipline um, because it's the subject matter of the scriptures on discipline and it functions to discipline our mental afflictions and also to discipline our sense organs. So basically all of um, the wrong views that we have, thinking that we're gonna get something good from hurting someone else. 
oh, if I, if I steal something from this person, I'm going to get something from it. If I, um, if I lie right now, I'm going to get what I want. That getting what I want comes from lying is completely backwards. So only good things can come from doing good things. Only bad things can come from doing bad things. So I guess I'm kind of getting into like the karma course now. But if you um, do something good and something bad comes from it, the bad thing came from a seed that you planted in the past. It didn't come from doing the good thing. So in a way, that's like a, well, not in a way. It's a really great way to live because we don't have to be guessing all the time, like, What's going to happen if I do this? Should I do this thing or should I do this? Should I be honest here, which I think is maybe going to not get me the job? Or should I lie, which, is, which I think is going to get me the job? Or should I be honest, which may make this person upset? Or should I lie, which I think won't make them upset? So from the Buddhist ethics point of view, if you follow, if you have vows, if you follow your vows, if you follow ethics, then you just always do what's right, and you don't have to worry about that. Whatever is going to happen from it is going to happen anyways. So, I mean, there's not a real way to test that, because you can do what's right, something wrong happens. But the way that karma works, if you did what's wrong, something wrong would happen too. So that's what we're talking about with ethics. Um, is starting to plant the seeds for the life that we want to see in the future. So we're just, it's like going to school. We go to school so we can get a degree, so we can get a good job, or um, go on to grad school, or, you know, for some reason, there's some goal that we're looking at in the future. And we do this with lots of things, with working out. If we expected working out to work, like, the first day we went to the gym, it just sounds ridiculous, but that's what we do with, with our whole life, usually. You know, we expect that things are happening from what we do in the present. Like, it's immediately happening because of that thing. But then in other ways in our lives, we're constantly planning ahead. So, I'm totally getting off topic, but <laughs> our worldview, the way we look at the world, doesn't really make that much sense. Because we think that some things... Um, oh, I'm, I'm going to the gym now, so I'll be in shape later. I don't expect it to happen today. You're saying instant gratification doesn't make sense, really. Right, the idea that, um, that I lie to in an interview and I, and I get the job because of that. I'm going out and getting drunk today. That might be fun right now, but it's not going to add up to a good life. Right, and, what, and it's planting seeds for maybe um, a foggy mind or to not remember things in the future. or No liver. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> Just as like lying is planting seeds to have people um, be dishonest around you in the future or what are the other specific karma correlations? Not believing you. Not yeah. Say. Yeah, I have that one. For a long time, I had that one happen a lot. I would say things 
that were, were completely true and nobody would believe them and someone else would say them and everyone would be like, oh, that's such a great idea. This is so amazing. <laughs> that's pronouncing a word a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Anyways, getting back on topic. Um, so that's all for the review. And all this goes like into multiple lives, right? And, and so it's, it's like, well, how can, you know, so if something bad happened to you, it came from somebody three generations ago, how, what, how do you cope with that? I know, it's, yeah, it's, and it's a big topic. So do you have any ideas? I would hope that if you're following the vows over time, you, you know, you get a better deal because of that, but, you know, that... Yeah, you do. And then that's where purification comes in, too, is if you see things happening in your life, you can kind of deduce what you did in the past, and then you can purify that. Even just generally, you can purify it, and as you're... There's different ways of purification, but as you're purifying something over and over, at a certain point you get the sense that it's gone and then that thing doesn't come up anymore too. So most of the time with purification, if it's unless it's something you just did, if it seems like it's a deep karmic habit or pattern in your life, it's going to take some time to purify it too. Which we probably all see in our lives. There's things that... I know for me that come up over and over and over. And the older I get, now I start to recognize this has been a pattern that I've been seeing for the last 15 years. You know, I didn't recognize it. It took me a while to recognize it. But now I see that it's this pattern. And then it's how do I shift it or how do I change it in some way or affect it. So we're kind of talking about that here. We're not going into all the workings of karma here, but um, we're definitely talking about how to shape our future through what we do in the present. So tonight, we're gonna talk about um, the whole Vinaya Sutra. So do you remember Choni Lama from last week? So um, in the Wish Fulfilling Jewel, He's going to explain to us the whole Vinaya Sutra. So this class covers in the outline form the entire scope of the Vinaya from beginning to end. And it's actually, I don't think it's that long, actually. We should have no problem getting through it. So the first part is... The first part of what? What are we talking about? Mm -hmm. So we're doing the outline of the Vinaya Sutra. So this is the first part of the Vinaya Sutra. And it's a preliminary overview. So this section would cover the life of Shakyamuni Buddha, who's right here. Um, and it describes the process by which the Buddha, the one that came to this world, became a Buddha outlining the major stages in his spiritual life over a period of three countless eons. So a really long time. Um, and it's a long story, how many times he was reborn and experimenting with paths before he found the right path. And it's a lot of stories 
where he's telling stories about horrible things that people did, and at the end of the story he says, and that was me, I did that. So he's, it's like outlining his whole, his whole path to awakening. And then Choni Lama goes through the specific years when the Buddha did specific things, like he left the palace, he had a super cushy life that he left. He began meditating in the forest and then gave his first teaching, so it goes over things like that. And this section also contains an explanation of the two root texts, the four explanatory sutras, all of the works on discipline, and their commentaries. So does everybody know what a commentary is? It's a reinterpretation of an original text. Mm -hmm. Right. So in Buddhism, there's all different commentaries from the root text, which would be usually from the Buddha, um, all the way back to the Buddha. And then another great master will come along and write a commentary on what the Buddha taught for that day and age, so people can understand it. He writes it in you know, like the language of that day. He's not changing anything, but just um, expanding on it and deepening it so that people in that time can understand it. And then there's commentary on that, and one on that, and one on that, and then it comes to closer to the present, and then we can understand what it's talking about. If we tried to read the root text, we would have no idea what it was talking about at all. Even in some of the readings, um, which... If you guys want to know where those are, we could, Lauren or I can tell you at the break. Um, some of them are hard, are hard to understand still. And there's, there's commentaries in the readings as well. So, okay. So after that, there's an explanation given for why Lord Buddha said that if we wanted to get the whole essence of Buddhism, it would be enough just to have the Vinaya scriptures. So the Vinaya, or the teachings of Vinaya, stand for the teachings of the Buddha. And we, we talked about this a little bit last week, where the Buddha said that wherever Vinaya is being taught, then I am there. So he meant that literally. So literally the Buddha is here with us as we're studying this, and with anyone else in the world who's studying the same thing. which. Probably isn't very many people. Maybe in Buddhist monasteries, they might be. Um, so it, it's really special to be studying these things. It's the longer you're around Buddhism, you'll see that these sorts of courses aren't taught very often in depth because not a lot of people are interested in that. They want more of the surface level. It's got eerie similarities to Christianity, Judaism, any of those which have an omnipresent God, right? What are you What are you thinking? Are the similarities? No, no, they are just the fact that you know, wherever wherever this thought I'm there, mm -hmm. it's it's that omnipresence that's shared between all of those religions, right? I don't know that much about 
about Christianity or other religions. I know about Buddhism. Yeah. You probably know more than I do about the others, but if that's what they say, then then yeah, yeah it is. Like you would, it's similar. You'd probably be familiar with if I pray, God would be listening, right? Something, mm-hmm. like, something like that. Mm-hmm. So a direct access to a being from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I think there's definite similarities, and there's also a lot of differences, too. Um, I don't wonder if some of those overlays have come in in order to be more similar to Christianity. You know, if you would go back to the root tests, you might not find that concept, but it might just have been added over the years in order to make it more palatable to Christians. Or vice versa, that Jesus was influenced by his practices. Right, because there's said that there was a time when he was in India for like yeah. 15 years or something like that. Um, well, the idea with the idea with the commentaries is that nothing is changed from its original form, and all of these courses, Geshe Michael created them, and he speaks Tibetan um, and Sanskrit, so he read he's read the original text. And then he uses commentary. So there's, it's not different from the root text. Um, and it might it might have been. I think in some way all the true religions are influenced. I don't know if true is like the right word, but all of the authentic religions that can be verified, you know, that have been around a long time. Um, I think they're just different ways to the same goal, and it's for you know a different type of practitioner attracts is attracted to different teachings. So I think that there are a lot of similarities because they're like all of if you call it God or enlightened beings have have got to the same place. Yeah, so I think that's probably part of the similarity too. I think those are like the the ten vows. The sort of, and what was that? What do you call them? The vows? The, the Pradi Moksha vows? Yeah. Um, or the Tanaka yeah, I definitely think there's, there's similarities there as mm-hmm. well, but there, it, it was a completely different interpretation that you gave when you sort of expanded on them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so this first section that we're going over in the Vinaya, or the overview of it, why does Choni Lama spend so much time on Shakyamuni Buddha in this, in this text? Um, the Vinaya addresses good deeds and bad deeds, and this is the subject of Lendre, say Lendre. 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 Which is karma and its consequences. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit ago. So there's a connection between what you think, say, and do and your whole world. So if you don't like um, your office or you don't like where you're living or you don't like what you're surrounded with, then there's a way for you to change it. And you and each of us created our world too. So we're ultimately responsible for everything. And that also means that we can change everything. There's not anything that can't be changed. 
which leads to the idea or, you know, it makes the, the idea possible that we'll all be enlightened beings at some point. So if things were not changeable, that wouldn't be possible. We would just be stuck in this body of, of flesh and blood until we die, you know? But it's not that way. Anything's possible because everything's created by karmic seeds. Um, and it's all lacks any inherent self-nature, which is maybe kind of choppy language, but there you have it. <laughs> um, so it's useful for us to know where everything came from in our world, and we can't see that yet. I know I can't. At the point when we're all enlightened beings, we'll be able to see all these karmic correlations and connections. And so that's why we're talking about the Buddha in this first section, because he's an enlightened being. He can see all these connections. And so he's the one who can help us get where we want to go. And that's what the Vinaya is. That's why we're talking about ethics, because we want to get to a point where we're out of suffering, we're out of unhappiness, um, anger, where we're out of all of, all of the stuff that is, is difficult in the world. We're, we're out of death. So there's not any of those things anymore. So the implication is that we can control our future and fix what we don't like about it by leading a moral life. That's what it comes down to. So we can't change our life right now, which probably all of us know, um, or, we would, or we would never have a bad day. We would never be unhappy. Nothing that we didn't like would ever happen if we could change things right now. But we can change our future. Okay, so this leads us to the three levels of reality. See, I got it to switch. Mm -hmm. um, Is that a PDF or? Mm -hmm. I, I downloaded it instead of just viewing it from the jump drive. And then oh. it, yeah. Okay. So I love these three levels of reality. I love these words. They're really fun to say. So these, all of these categories are really fluid depending on who the observer is, which we'll talk about just a little bit. So the first level of reality, say nyungyur, nyungyur, and that is obvious reality. So this level of reality is the one that we can perceive directly, for example, with our senses. Like I am directly perceiving this computer screen that sort of thing. It's not anything that we need to figure out. It's basically perceptions of colors, shapes, etc. And then we can also directly perceive our thoughts, like when we're thinking of something directly and not using a process or reasoning. So that would be in this section. So is your obvious reality the same for someone else? Yep, and so this, so this level that we're talking about, seeing colors, shapes, physical things, who would that be different for? Like, what type of person? 
Uh-huh. Yeah, so a blind person wouldn't be seeing the colors and shapes that we're seeing. Um, and these categories... Just talked about that. Okay, so the second one, say Kokir. Kokir. Um, and this one is subtle reality. And this reality is deep enough that it can only be perceived by a process of logical reasoning for most people. So not directly. You'd have to think it over. It's not something that you could see with your eyes, hear with your ears, smell with your nose. You can only see it with some kind of reasoning. So for example, at this stage of our development, well, of mine for sure, Emptiness is subtle reality. So you could say you could say that emptiness is um, like what we will see in deep meditation one day and we'll see how the world is really working. So how we're well that would kind of be right before. But we'd see directly reality. How um, this isn't exactly it, but it's similar. How something pops up and we place a label on it. Person yells and we label jerk. Or a person yells and we label um, awesome because they're yelling at someone we don't like. Something like that. So in a way, that's what we're seeing when we see emptiness directly. That actually happens right before, but um, we don't really have time to get into the whole thing. So that's an example of something that we would see with some kind of reasoning. So as I'm saying that, we're seeing that idea with reasoning. I'm guessing none of us are seeing this directly, but you all might. It might just be me who's not. So we can only, I can only tell my own mind. And for most people, um, about 99.99999% of people can't see emptiness directly. Um, does anyone have any idea why that would be? It's really hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Haven't put in the work. Yeah, exactly. Every, everybody is capable of it, and we just haven't put in the work to, to do it. We have to keep our, our morality really clean, and we have to spend time meditating. And I've heard different amounts, but up to two hours a day at least. So at a certain point, working up to that. And then I've heard an hour a day, and then I've heard three hours a day. So you're basically just working your way up so you can get your mind clearer and clearer and clearer so you can be so focused that, um, that you can then go into this meditation, which then leads you to nirvana, which leads you to Buddhahood. So when we see emptiness directly in meditation, it will be nungir which is 
the first one, obvious reality. And then when we go back out of meditation, it will again be kokir, which is um, subtle reality. So it'll be something that we'll have to look at through reasoning again. And then the third one, say shinta kokir. Shinta kokir. Extremely subtle reality. So, for example, the subtlest workings of karma and its consequences was what, what we were just talking about with the Buddha. Um, the connections between what you think, say, and do and what happens to you as a result. So what would life be like if you knew that? If you knew everything that you did, everything that you thought, everything that you said, if you knew the exact connection, what it would bring. It would be like unimaginably different. Because most, most of our day is just spent like, okay, I want to have this chocolate bar, but I don't know if I should. I don't know if it's going to make me feel sick. You know, am I going to be full for lunch? Should I not eat it? Should I go to bed early? Should I, you know, like all these things. It's just like this endless choices. What do I do? Do I take this job or that job? Do I, um, I don't know, watch this TV show or that one? Do I sit down and meditate now? What do I meditate on? It's, it's just endless, endless things. So if we knew exactly what would come from every single thing that we did, there would be no longer those choices. We would, we would just know. There wouldn't be any struggle. There wouldn't be any worry. I, it's almost unimaginable because that's how, that's like our entire life, you know? Like, what do I do to get where I want to go? And then we just kind of guess a bunch of times until we start studying more and then we get a little more of an idea and maybe we have a spiritual guide who is more realized than we are, can help us. So until then, we're just kind of like stumbling around in the dark and just taking a stab at things here and there. And sometimes things work and sometimes they don't, which is where all of the struggle in life comes from. So I do one thing today and it works really well. And I do it tomorrow and it doesn't work at all. So it's just, it's just the ups and downs of life and that's what all of us go through. It's the nature of reality that we're living in. And it doesn't mean that any of us are doing anything wrong in those, those places. You know, the fact that life isn't working out isn't a personal failing. You didn't do anything wrong. That's the nature of this life. It happens to everybody. It doesn't matter what their world looks like. So nobody gets out of this life alive. So in a way, that can be kind of a relief because it, we're also going through life thinking that if we just do things the right way, we'll get what we want. Um, but it doesn't work out like that. Sometimes those things work and sometimes they don't. So that can't be the cause of getting what we want. So that's the whole point of studying ethics is so that we know what to do. Someone who's seen the path, who knows how to, to get out of the suffering life, is guiding us through. 
And we can't see directly yet that these ethics have relation to no more suffering. So we're just trusting. We're trusting this person or this enlightened being that we have some sort of faith in, maybe from other teachings that they've given that we can see directly. And then we're following, we're following this path and seeing where it's, where it's taking us. Okay, and it's, we're not going into karma really deeply here, but for maybe 15 more minutes and we'll take a break. Um, but it's wild to think that we've all had tens of thousands of distinct thoughts today, and each one of them is going to have a result. Each separate one will have a result. So if you think about it like that, it's not hard to see how there could have been countless lifetimes before and countless lifetimes after. You don't have to believe that or not, but if you think about that, that thought that we've had tens of thousands of different thoughts today and they're all gonna to bring a result in the future. So you just get this sense that time and um, the continuum of our consciousness is really, really big. That's why it said that it's beginningless and endless. So there's not like one point where it starts and there's not one point where it ends. And each thought contributes to our future reality and each thought from the past contributed to the reality that is around us right now. So, only an omniscient mind, like we said before, a Buddha, can see the connections between the actions of our body, speech, and mind and the consequences. And so there's no, um, there's no sense of punishment in anything that happens to us. We're never being punished for anything. It's simply cause and effect. There's not someone out there who's who's deciding to um, give us a flat tire one day or something like that. There's no one else that's in control. It's all seeds that we've planted in the past. It's all cause and effect. So you can think of it very scientifically. Um, so it's not like someone in our world dies and we did something to deserve that or they did something to deserve that. It's simply seeds that we planted in the past. Karma is not a punishment in any way, which I think when we first come to the teachings of karma, especially from maybe a Christian background or you know from Western world, we think that karma is punishment, but it's not at all. It's simply cause and effect. There's no, um, there's no judgment in it. There's no this person's getting what they deserve. You know, there's nothing like that in there. We're just, we just add that in there in our Western world when we think of it. But the longer you're around karma and studying Buddhism and working with it yourself, that level of, I think punishment is just the best word that is coming to mind. But that level of, I did something bad and I'm being 
um, yeah, I'm being punished for it now just evaporates because it's not like that. It's simply you're planting karmic seeds for the future and then seeds from the past are ripening. And that's all it is. And if, you, if we're planting lovely, amazing seeds, then that's what our world looks like. And if we didn't in the past, then we're just being shown what we need to learn and what to do differently for the future. So there's no, like, um, yeah, the only word coming to mind is punishment. There's no punishment or... There's no intention. Yeah. There's no, like, intention to do harm or something like that. Right. So if you're writing a book about Vinaya, you have to depend on the Buddha um, and mainly Shintokokyur can only be seen by the means of studying an enlightened being so in our lives we can't see the connection between stealing some change and someone shorting us $10 on our you know on our change at some point in the future or we can't see the connection between stealing from someone and not getting a promotion at work. We think that it came from, that it's the other person's fault who applied, or that um, the hiring manager has it in for us, or something like that. Like that's just, we just can't see those connections. It doesn't come from, from somebody else, it only comes from us. So whatever seeds we planted, we have the seeds to get that promotion, then we get that promotion. It doesn't mean that we don't we stop doing things. We keep applying. We keep we keep trying things with good intention, with a good heart, and those things will come to us at some point. But to be able to take out the blaming on everyone else is like a huge huge relief. It just it takes like a whole level of worry off of off of our shoulders. So it doesn't mean that there aren't other people in the world doing things and doing things that are maybe harmful. But the way we experience them um, is based on whatever seeds we have ripening. So that explains how one situation can be upsetting for one person and really happy for someone else. Like, you can think of, um, I don't know if everyone want to go there, but you can think of a, a presidential election. Some people are really happy that one person gets elected, and some people are really upset about it. It's the same person. It's just one group has certain karmic seeds arising, the other group has different ones. So... That's why we're talking about the Buddha, because he can see those connections, which we can't see, and then he guides us. Let me see if we need to go over all of this. Scan through it. So it's really, if we don't like our world or anything in it, then we study Vinaya, which we're doing, because it's really the science of constructing your future reality. That's what we're doing with the Vinaya. 
Um, and what we're going to do in this course, we're not going to be listing all the vows. That's not the point. But we're going to figure out how we got what we don't like and then how we can change it. Okay, let me see if there's anything else we need to say about this. And we're not just talking about the effect of lying on our present life, we're talking about the long-term effect on our reality. And so, at this point, I didn't mention this again this week, but these are courses that Gesha Michael taught, and I'm really just reteaching them. Um, and they were taught to me from my teacher, who got them from Gesha Michael, who got them from his teacher, and then on and on and on and on back. So basically, I'm just teaching what he taught and what is in these courses online. So he talks about in this class about um, fortune tellers or um, psychics and that sort of thing. And, he's, and what he says is that that's totally just a waste of money. All we have to do is look at our present life to see what our past life was like. And we look at our present life and what we're doing, and we'll know what our future life's going to be. So we can really just tell our own future. And then whether or not we change it is a matter of personal willpower. So we'll learn all of the karmic connections, but it takes an omniscient being to lay them out for us. Okay. Um, let's see if we have time to go through this one before break or if we should wait. Okay, we'll go up a little bit. Okay, so now after that section, overview about the Buddha, now we're going to go into the actual explanation of the root text. So, number one, say, Sen Gi Dun. Sen Gi Dun. Sen Gi Dun. Okay, and that's uh, the meaning of the name of the title and an explanation of what Vinaya and Sutra mean. So, Vinaya is called Vinaya because you can control two things by studying it, bad thoughts and desire for sense objects. And then number two, say Gyurgi Chuck. Gyurgi Chuck. I don't know if we have time to go through this one. Oh, yeah, we do. Okay. Um, and this is an explanation of the translator's obeisance. So, I don't know if I'm actually saying that word right, but. The obeisance was a traditional requirement set up by early Tibetan kings in order to identify the subject matter based on whom you were prostrating to. So, who are we prostrating to in this text? Buddha. Mm -hmm. So, in the Vinaya, we're bowing to the Buddha because he understands the subtle workings of karma. 
And then if we were bowing to Lord Manjushri, you'd know the subject was wisdom or emptiness. So that's why this tradition was set up. And then, so there's a few parts of three. Three A, say Gusok Chu Shi. Gusok Chu Shi. Gusok Chu Shi. And that's commentary upon the root text. Did <laughs> you said that? No. How funny. It didn't go off last night for Gesha Sultram. Because he stopped early. It's on the back. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're in military time, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Vinaya, you said the, the literal translation is discipline, right? Yes. We're using this discipline in order to achieve. But what does sutra mean again? Um. So sutra. Did we go over this last week? Do you guys remember? Oh, sorry. Um. Sutra is the word spoken by the Buddha. Um. And it could also be a short work, like a few pages. Okay. Is also a sutra, and there's one more. Which were then compiled and you know all put together in the Vinaya. Yeah. yeah. I think that we will take a break and then we'll come back. So we'll probably take like ten minutes or something like that, and then we'll come back. Okay. And you can help yourself to tea and snacks, water. Oh my gosh, this is so boring. Or does it, isn't it? 
But um, I think this is from Tahoe brought it. Where are you going? Yeah, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. same sort of level of mindfulness with power yoga, but... Yeah, you can, mm. you can get it, but I think it's really helpful for, like, very, like, kind of more tight, type A's, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Because um, you can kind of, like, the music's really loud, yeah. a lot of them are really hot, so you can kind of just, like, get out of yourself a little yeah. bit. Turn off the music. Shut yeah. up. Like, <laughs> you know, and so it's like. 
like, if it could be a silent power vinyasa class, maybe I could have done it. Or, like, very minimal prompting. But it's, yeah. like, people are, like, the music's so loud, and they're talking the whole time, and it's, I didn't, after a while, I stopped liking that. program I think it's like the third Friday of every month we sponsor breakfast at Loaves and Fishes and you can sign up to either help with food you can donate money or you can go and serve that morning and then they're also doing maybe like every Sunday and every third Saturday or something like that there's there's more information on our Facebook yeah it's really, it's really cool, yeah. And they serve, I think they serve like at least 200 people on those Sundays. Yeah, yeah, it is. Or not on those Sundays, on the Fridays. Did you, have you done it? <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of fun. Rewarding. Yeah. Breakfast? Yeah. Yeah. time well I think we will we'll end with another meditation okay so we're on 3A so we'll go over it again say Gusok Chushi Gusok Chushi 
Gusok Chu Shi. And that is commentary upon the root text. And this is a common opening for every Buddhist text. So it proves that the text is worth studying and that it's relevant to you reaching the goal of the path, basically. So in Buddhism, if a book doesn't have Gusok Chu Shi, then just forget about it because your life's too short to waste your time on something that's not going to get you to the goal. And normally you would memorize it. I mean, Harry Potter's just gone. <laughs> <laughs> it, I think it kind of depends how you see Harry Potter <laughs> or how you experience the, the book. <laughs> so the, the way you relate to a book in Buddhism is completely different. It's more like a relationship that you're building. It's an experience. Um, like in the monastery, they would memorize it, debate it. It's like it becomes a lifelong companion. Um, it's not that you read it and then put it on a shelf and then you move on to the next thing. The first class I ever took here, they had you read like the same three-paragraph section every day for a week. It was a really interesting way to approach a book. Yeah. I know, it is. It's very different. Instead of like speed reading to get through it or something like that. Yeah. I think I, I read a lot of books that way now. I'll read until something causes me to think about it and I'll stop. I might read a half a page and like, oh, okay, I'm going to think about that for a while. Yeah. So it might take me months to read a book, you know. Yeah, because there's layers and layers of meaning and each time you read it, you get deeper and deeper layers which is the same thing that we're talking about here. So what Geshe Michael talks about when he's teaching this class of this course is that in the monastery, they spend 10 years on the Abhidharma Kosha, and it becomes like a part of your life. It becomes like a good friend. And you never finish it. You just keep going deeper and deeper into the meaning. So if you relate to the text or the books in the proper way, then you can reach nirvana and Buddhahood, and that's what, this, that's what this is saying. So don't waste your life on anything less than that. Um, books like these, they become your lifetime companion, and they can lead you to total happiness. And so it doesn't mean that we don't ever take a break or take some time off. But especially when your mind is fresh and clear, which it will only be for a short period of our life, and it's usually only fresh and clear for a short period of the day, don't waste that clear, bright mind on something that's um, just going to be wasting your time and wasting your life, wasting time that you won't ever get back to. And then next, Choni Lama gets into the actual commentary. So Tibetan Buddhism is known for having lots of lists and sublists, so you're kind of getting a taste for that in this class today. So the actual commentary has a few parts. The first one say Dompa Matopa Topje. Dompa Dompa Matopa Topje. So 
This one is getting the pure lineage vows properly. So just like the idea of a book, your idea of vows should change from this course. Mostly we think of restriction and limitation in our culture. That's what comes to mind. We think of ethics or morality or vows. But really you should, you should consider that the vows give you wings to fly if you grow them strong enough. So they don't restrict you. They set you free from whatever's binding you, whatever's holding you. Because it's like you have direct advice from an enlightened being on how to get there yourself. It's like he's trying to help us along. You know, it's kind of that idea um, when you think of maybe like a spider. Okay, for me, a spider that's in my house that um, I'm doing the dishes and it's in the sink. And the spider doesn't understand that it's going to get washed down the drain if it stays in the sink. So I'm, I'm trying to get it like into a cup or something like that, but it doesn't want to go. It's scared and it's trying to run away. I'm like, no, you're going to die if you stay in here because I'm going to be doing the dishes. So I finally get it in the cup and it still freaks out. It's kind of like us. Like the Buddha is trying to help us and we're, we're freaking out. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. But they're trying to save us. They're trying to get us to where we want to go. So we're kind of like the little spider stuck in the sink. So the vows give us, the vows in a way you can think of, they give you a certain kind of power, like they give you superpowers that you would never have without them. So you could do the same things before you had your vows and then do the same things after and the whole experience changes and the whole power of those deeds changes. They have the power of the vows behind them. Um, so if you take them and keep them, it's completely different than if you didn't have them. So in some way they completely change your being. So the first point is how to get the vows. And this is talking about getting the pure lineage vows in the proper way so that they actually form in your being and have an effect on you. <coughs> so it talks about what's the proper ritual, the attitude you should have, and who can give the vows. So there's ordination ceremonies, and they're called earlier and later ceremonies. In the first five years or so, which this is really cool, uh, of the Buddha's career, he'd call someone to him, and their hair would fall out and robes would form, and that's how they would get their vows. So it was totally wild. You know, like they didn't have to shave their head. He would just, you know, he'd say like, Mike, come here. His hair would all fall out. He'd have robes. <laughs> and that's how you would get, that's how you get their, their vows. <laughs> <coughs> and then later on you know when the Buddha wasn't wasn't there too it became uh, more formal ceremonies and that's what's come up to this present moment so this whole subject is the first subject in the Vinaya Sutra so say Kenbo Lopam Kenbo Lopam. 
So a Kembo has come to mean the abbot of a monastery, um, but in some traditions, Kembo has come to mean Geshe, which is kind of like a PhD in Buddhism. That's how it's usually explained. But in the Vinaya, it has a totally different meaning. So in the Vinaya, a Kembo is a person who grants the vows. And the qualifications are very strict and very complicated. Um, the Kembo has extraordinary qualities and history as a monk, um, or maybe a nun. And then Lopam, in Sanskrit, is called Acharya. I really love that word. And it's come to mean anyone who is good at something or a master. But in the Vinaya, it means the monks who take other important roles in the ordination ceremony. And then the next subject that comes up is who can be a Kembo and what is your relationship to a Lopam. And this is the whole thing of creating pure vows in the mind of the vow takers. So this section goes into that in depth. So in the next class, we're going to talk about how you form these vows in a person's heart. <clears throat> and then they also talk about the different types of vows. And Choni Drakpa Shedrev goes into the measurement of time, which is really important when you're taking ordination, especially in a monastery, because um, it creates the seniority levels. So even if someone's younger than me, if they were ordained before me, then there's protocol that takes place. So forever after, you have to respect that person who took the vows before you. And it's also true with the bodhisattva vows, which um, in our center, a bunch of people have taken, but mostly people ignore it. And uh, Gisha Michael says that we shouldn't. It's important. So there's there's some sense of respect for those people who have taken those vows before you. It doesn't matter what you think of them personally. Um, it's just this respect for them having gone before you in that way. And then the second, so the second section, the first is how to get your vows. What do you think the second is? So says it right up here, but um, how to keep the vows from being damaged after you've taken them. So say, topa mi nyampa. Topa mi nyampa. Topa mi nyampa. Okay. So how to keep the vows from being damaged after you've taken them. And it's topa vows. Topa mi I don't know if I wrote down what each word means. That would be my guess, but I don't know for sure. So, so this is Tibetan, and this the whole system in this book was kind of devised as a Tibetan system for practicing. Right. Was all of this in Sanskrit before this, or this was originally? It would it would have come from Sanskrit. 
translated into Tibetan. Which is why, which is why I mentioned Sanskrit before that Kesha Michael can speak both. So when there's any question in the Tibetan, he can reference the Sanskrit, which would be really amazing to be able to do. I really like Sanskrit, and I'm starting to like Tibetan a lot more the more I studied it. At first, it seems kind of these are English characters, know. not right. Right. Be written in a different character set. Right. Yeah. Do we have yeah, that anywhere? Oh yeah. yeah. On the purse. Yeah. So um, this second one, guess what? There's four parts. <laughs> um, so there's four parts to keeping the vows from being damaged. Okay, so the first one is relying on an outer support, a monastic preceptor to help keep your vows. And this is called a nay lama, or a resident teacher, who would guide a young monk, basically. Um, so you have to keep, at least in the monastery, you have to keep your nay lama for the first 10 years, and they don't have to be your spiritual teacher. Um, or your scripture teacher. It's usually an older monk who's agreed to take you on, and in the monastery, it's very strict. The requirement for a nay lama is extensive, and they're very difficult to fulfill those requirements. They're very wise, well-trained, pure. There's 105 items on the list that they have to meet to be able to be a nay lama. And then in, in kind of our lineage as it's come down, there's also the idea of a nay lama. It would be someone, um, say your main spiritual teacher travels a lot or doesn't live in the area, or maybe you only see them once a year. So you would have a nay lama who is in the area who you can talk to, you can get advice from them, and that sort of thing. Someone who you have like a personal connection with on a more regular basis or who can take care of you, questions you have when your spiritual teacher's in retreat and unreachable, something like that. Um, so then after 10 years of having the Nalama, which is in the monastery, not the way that we would do it in our lineage, um, then you get some kind of ability to act on your own more frequently. So up until that point, they're kind of the boss. And they would also go through some of the ordination details of what the student should be like. Okay, so that's the first one. The second is relying on an inner support for your own pure intentions. So we should always remember and maintain our original motivation for taking the vows which can be hard the longer and longer you have the vows and the more you study, it's kind of easy to forget. So we should be thinking that life is um, difficult. You know, we're constantly dissatisfied and I'm taking these vows to get out of that. That's why I'm doing this. So always remembering the motivation. And that's called the inner support. 
So on the inside, you have to keep some awareness of the intention with which you took the vows. There are um, layperson's vows as well as vows that a monk would take on. Mm -hmm. okay, so are the, these seem to be or aimed more at the monk in, in a monastery. Is there an analogous set of things for a layperson? Yeah, some of, so some of the examples that are given in the, the course are from the monastery because Geshe Michael was in a Tibetan monastery. So he gives like examples so that we can get familiar with what happens in that setting. But yes, there are, <coughs> there are sets of vows that we can take, like the Bodhisattva vows, uh, the Pradimoksha and refuge vows. And then as we can continue to study and maybe go through all these courses, then there are tantric vows after that. So there's lots of different vows that lay people can take. Um, and there's also, like all of these ideas that we're going through, most of them, there's an equivalent in a non-monastic life too. So they do apply. And this is, so we're kind of going over like the overview and we're not going to go into any of the monks or the nuns vows because you're not allowed to learn them unless you're taking them. Mm -hmm. um, so we're just going to go through the overview right now. So with the, the Pradimoksha vows, which are one set of vows that we can take. We lose those vows when we die, but then the bodhisattva vows. Does everyone know what, bodhi, what a bodhisattva is? Somebody that gives themselves to helping others, basically. Right, yes. So wanting to reach full awakening in this, well, it doesn't have to be in this life, wanting to reach full awakening um, to be able to help everyone else do the same thing. So those vows stay with you when you die. You don't lose those at death. At what point do you receive that title the moment you decide I, I want to reach Buddhahood or at some point in the path? For example, so. Oh, the, the vows or the... No, the, just the title that someone would say, like, this person is a Bodhisattva. Yeah, like, when exactly do you truly become a Bodhisattva? Is well, it a point, or is it, like, is everyone in the monastery, like, in, 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 just by heading down the path of Buddhahood, given that designation, or? Oh, like, do other people call them a bodhisattva? Right, right, right. What, do you have an idea? What do you think? No, I'm asking that sincerely. Um, I think there's a way where, especially in Dharma centers, people might say, oh, she's a bodhisattva, or he's a bodhisattva, because people are helping out and um, being kind and that sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually are. And the only way you're going to know is um, in yourself. And maybe if your, your teacher can see, then maybe they'll know as well. But everyone in the monastery wouldn't necessarily be it would depend on their practice and where they're at in their practice and how successful it is. And in another sense, everybody 
besides myself could be a bodhisattva because I, I can't see in anyone's mind. I, can only, I only know that I'm not, but I don't know if anyone else is or not. So it's kind of for yourself to determine. Yeah, that's why we're going through, we go through the teachings and all the stages and all, like, on the whole path so that we can then locate where we are. And then we know the signpost, okay, I'm here, but I'm not yet there. And then as we go on in the teachings further and further and further, then we get to see more and more how everything fits in. And then we can also place each teaching that we get in each point on the path. So this teaching I'm getting here goes in the Bodhisattva path. You know, this one goes in um, refuge. You know, just in all the different paths up to, up to Buddhahood. Does that answer it? Yeah. Well, because it's always been fuzzy for me, because I'm like, is there a ceremony where they, like, knight you a bodhisattva? Or there is, is a bodhisattva vow ceremony. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily... I mean, it is possible. There's a point in the vow where the teacher snaps their fingers, and that's when you have the vows formed. And I guess if you had the right karmic seeds at that point, you could become a bodhisattva as well. Um, but I know when I took them that not what happened for me, but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. But there is definitely a certain point where you don't have the vows and then where you do have the vows. Yeah. Very sad answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is he up there? Yes. So these are the four parts to keeping the vows from being damaged. C is having a good understanding of the factors that work against them. How are we doing for time? Okay, I think we're okay. So basically this is knowing the vows clearly. What constitutes breaking them or not breaking them, and what can be modified. There's a lot of Americans who take the Bodhisattva vows who have no clue what they mean. Probably, you know, not just Americans, probably a lot of people who take the Bodhisattva vows have no idea what they mean. And so one way to keep them well is to actually know them. Right? It makes, it makes sense. So at this point, they're mainly... We already went over that. We don't need to again. So in this section, he also explains how you can lose your vows, and we'll talk about this, how do you lose the Pratimoksha vows. Um, they get into ethical conundrums, like what are you supposed to do when two sets of vows that you have um, contradict each other, which does happen. Um, if you take the Bodhisattva vows and then you take the Tantric vows or the secret vows, then this becomes very important to understand that. Then there's a subject about if Buddhism reaches a new culture, what can we adjust for different situations in our culture? So all very useful things to know. And then they get into extenuating circumstances. If someone goes crazy and breaks a vow, do they lose their vow? If someone accidentally 
I don't know how this happens, but if someone accidentally takes a drug and goes wild, did they break their vows? Um, okay, and then there's 17 monastic practices, and these are the three most important. And there's ways that we can do these three in our practices as, in our practice as well. So the first one says sojong. Second is yarne. Third is galye. Sojong, yarne, galye. Okay, so sojong is the practice of the monks and nuns meeting together twice a month to do purification and confession, which if you have, well, even if you don't have your vows, but if you have your vows, you can meet together with your Dharma brothers and sisters and do the same thing. It maybe wouldn't be the same formal ceremony, but you could get together and do confession and purification and just clean your mind of, of whatever you've done in the past month or so. Even if you don't have the vows, you could do this with, um, you know, with a group of practitioners. It's helpful, it's probably helpful if whoever you're doing this with knows the vows, or at least has some understanding. Um, and it wouldn't be like a conversation, I, I mean, I would think, I haven't done it before, but it would probably be like, like a circle like we're in, and you go around and each person would, you know, be open and say whatever they want to talk about. And then maybe like a fire puja or something like that. Um, so the sojong is done based on the lunar calendar. So all the monks would be doing sojong at the same time, which is really cool. No matter where they were in the world, they would all be doing it at the same time. And then the second one which sounds really sweet, is a three-month summer retreat. So the sangha, or a group of practitioners, stays in a certain area quietly and studies scriptures and meditates all together. Um, and normally, they'd say, we're going to block out this three months, and we'd pick someone to cook. Uh, so cooking would be taken care of. And then it would be studying and meditating together for a few months. And then after that would be the release of summer retreat, which is a three-week celebration. Which sounds like a long celebration. It's almost a month long. That's when the accidental drug taking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so at that time, they can listen to the radio, play games, go see a movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and what Geshe Michael says in this course is that you'll even see the Kembo or the Abbot playing games with the kids. So it's a nice custom where all of the seriousness just relaxes for a little bit. So the little kids do the retreat too? That's kind of what it sounds like. I don't think they're studying this in the same way. 
The Dalai Lama was selected when he was like six, right? Yeah. And immediately entered a monastery. They do go in when they're little kids, but they just study. They study the easy stuff when they're young. <laughs> I think they mostly do memorization. Yeah. When they're young, and then they don't. They have the robes, but they don't take their vows until. Um, sixteen. Yeah, it was fifteen or sixteen or something like that. Yeah. With this release, can it? It, if like if we decided to do a three month summer retreat, we could also do the Galyang. We could also have the release of summer retreat for three weeks. We'd all just have to have like fifteen weeks off from work or whatever that would add up to be. Like traditionally, traditionally you'd be in the monastery. Summer retreats, not that the kids were a part of it, but that they were out and about in the nearby village and there's kids there. Or Oh, I guess it could it could mean that. I was thinking it was it was meeting the kids in the monastery. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they probably they're going out to see a movie. They're going to be interacting with the villagers and that sort of thing. So after that, then they go back to hard study, and the days in the monastery are about eighteen hours long. So the resting and relaxing sometimes is really important. Same thing in our own practice. It's important to study and to meditate daily, to practice daily, at least somewhat. And then it's also important to have times when we relax. So finding that balance. Otherwise, we just burn out in our practice and then we stop doing it. Um, And on the flip side, if we're too lax, then we're not going to see the results that the practice can bring. And so we'll lose faith in it that way too. So we have to find that balance in our practice. We're practicing enough, but then not too hard and not too little. And that'll be different from for everybody, so you just have to find what it is for you. You don't have to push yourself to do as much as someone else, and what someone else is doing might not be enough for you too. So it's just finding the right rhythm, the right intensity for your mind and for your life, which will vary, too, based on what else is going on in your life. Okay, next. Let me see what we have left here. Okay. So, how's everybody doing? First two look the same, They are. Good job. (laughs) So this is kind of to orient orient us again. This is what we're going over. So we did one, getting the pure lineage vows properly. Two, how to keep the vows from being damaged. And now three, say nyam na chir chupa. Nyam na chir chupa. So now, we've learned the first two, now we're going to learn how to, or now, you know, the commentary will go over how to restore your vows if they've been broken. And this includes confession, purification, and reconciliation.
And then there's also a whole section on how to restore unity in the monastery as well. So you can kind of think of a sangha or a group of spiritual practitioners too. Um, because by definition, if we're in this world, none of us are perfect. And so there's bound to be things that are going to come up or happen. That's why they would need a reconciliation process to restore unity. And then, you know, that can also happen in any group of more than one person, too. It's just what happens when people get together. And the same thing there. I think sometimes we go into a Dharma group and we expect that everybody's going to be perfect or even a re any other religious group, um, any church or something like that, and we think everyone's supposed to be perfect there. But, you know, maybe we come across someone who we see as not perfect and then we lose faith in the whole religion or the whole Dharma group, which is just... Um, unrealistic because just because people are in a dharma group or a religious group doesn't mean that they've reached the goal yet but it does mean that they're trying it does mean that they're studying and trying to get there so it's okay for people to make mistakes and in a dharma group especially like our center you know things come up and then being all on the same spiritual path, we know that we can talk to each other on the same level and work through things in a different way. So it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect and no one's ever going to bother you. Because most likely, people are going to bother you wherever you go. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's just how it goes. <laughs> so the difference is that we're all on the same path. And so in a way, you can say that we're Dharma brothers and sisters because we're walking the path towards enlightenment together. And then all of these irritating people, especially in the Dharma Center, are trying to help us get there. They're, you know, they're, it's, there's this analogy used, we're all like these jagged rocks in a jar and we're being shaken around. And then over time, all the rocks are getting smoother and smoother. So all of our jagged edges are being smoothed out by you know, everyone that we're walking the path with. And a lot of times it does feel like that too. Um, but on another level too, there's some sort of deeper connection with the people that you're studying Dharma with as well. So it's, it's very different. And as you walk along the path longer, or maybe, or maybe now, you'll build relationships in a different way. It's not that you have people to go out to a movie with all the time or go on vacation with, but you have a whole group of people that you can come to and talk to about anything and who will be there for you and help you through things. So it's a deeper relationship in a way, kind of more important on the spiritual path at least. So, the purpose of taking the vows is to control the behavior that we normally do. 
So it's very likely that we'll be damaging them to some extent because we're trying to control behavior that we've been doing for a really long time and we're used to doing. Okay, and then this last section Do I have, oh yeah, there's one more. Okay. We're gonna go through this fast. Lauren, will you grab the, can you grab the wheel of life from the door or is it connected to the top? Okay. So we're gonna see if we can go through this part kind of fast and then we can have time for a meditation. Does that sound good? Okay. So the next section in the Benaya um, is where they talk about how far away the monastery should be from the nearest village. And then they talk about the drawing of the Wheel of Life, which is what Lauren has. So as we start to talk about it, um, you guys can either all look at it together or you can kind of pass it around and look at it one by one. So this in the right place? Yeah. So the section on ancillary points contains a description of how the wheel of life designed by the Buddha to talk about samsara and nirvana is to be drawn. So this section is actually really cool. Uh, the opening line of the section say, Kokdan, just say Kokdan. Kokdan. Do Korway. Do Korway. Cha. Naparjao. Naparjao. Okay. And that is, so, with each dash, that's the literal translation right there. So, Kokangdu is at the foyer, Korwe is samsara, Korlo O is the is what, what does the foyer represent? The right. Entrance? Right, yeah. So, to the wheel of life, it's basically saying put that painting of the wheel of life in the foyer or at the entrance. So, like we have it at the door. That's what it's saying. Oh, I see. Um, and that's just the literal translation of the words. So you, when you're translating, you would read it back to front. So you would start with the make it to putting, and then you kind of loosely translate it and to put that painting of the Wheel of Life of Suffering in the foyer and give it five parts. Okay, and then we'll go over these. So you can look at the Wheel of Life right there, and you'll see all of the parts that we're going to talk about. So I won't go into them super detailed, because I want to have at least five minutes to do a short meditation. Okay, so number one, say Chana. 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 Okay. 
So cha is parts, na is five. Does anyone have a guess what this would represent? No. There's five regions in the wheel. No. Yep. What do those represent, Mike or Lauren? Do you guys know? The five realms? Yep. Five realms. Good job. Anyone know? Gods and demigods, humans, animal, unrevealed hell realm. Yep. So, I don't know, does that one have five or six? Mm, it has five-ish. The gods and demigods are kind of, sometimes there's like a really clear line and sometimes they're kind of blurred. Yeah. Right there. So nowadays sometimes there's six parts, but traditionally they would, there would be five. Mm -hmm. And that's the main, the main wheel. And then say Bardoa Zuki. Bardoa Zuki. So that means Bardo beings. Um, and those are beings who are born miraculously. They just show up. Let's see what I can skip over here. So it's basically some kind of spirit being between death and rebirth. That's what the Bardo beings would be. And so this is describing how to paint the wheel of life. So you would paint them in a chain to represent beings going up and down from realm to realm, from dying into being. And those the ones in the black and white. Yeah. yeah. So right here, there's Bardo beings going down and down. So are Bardo's included in the five realms? No, they're not, but they are in samsara, so they have to be included in the wheel somewhere. Okay, next one, say duksum. 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 So duke is poison, sum is three, so this one is three poisons. And those are the three animals in the middle. Um, and they represent the three poisons of the mind that basically make us suffer our whole life. So the rooster is liking things ignorantly, <laughs> like expecting things to make us happy that can't do that. The snake is disliking things ignorantly. Um, and then the pig is ignorance itself. And we have all three of these constantly operating in our mind. Okay, let's see. So we can skip over that. If, so if you kill ignorance itself or the pig, then you would automatically kill the other two. The other two would be gone. Okay, number four, say yen lock. Yen lock. Yen lock. So that's the 12 links of dependent origination, which are the 12 pictures, which describe the mechanism which triggers rebirth. And they're drawn around the outside. And then say tamche, mitakpa, niki sum. Tamche, mitakpa, niki sum. 
Okay, and then you draw everything in the clutches of impermanence. And that's the monster on the outside, which represents the fact of your own impermanence, which is killing you day by day, moment by moment from the inside. Number six, say Dawa. 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 So then there's the Buddha who should be outside of the five realms and he's pointing to a lovely white heavenly body showing the way to nirvana. Dawa means moon and normally it's a big white full moon. Is he not on there? Is what? Is he a red Buddha? It doesn't say the color. Yeah, because he'd be pointing the way to Nirvana. Mm -hmm. On the upper right? Upper left. And then there's a red Buddha on the upper right, sitting on a throne. Uh, uh, yeah, this is upper right. This is right. If you're the Buddha. If you're the oh, yeah, if I'm inside Buddha. the painting. <laughs> Why wouldn't I be inside the painting? <laughs> 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 you have arrived, it's your own <laughs> 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 Yeah. You have right. Okay. But at the bottom of the painting, which is the bottom whether you're inside the painting or outside the painting, <laughs> add the two verses. Um, number one, basically what to take up and what to give up. So you take up practice, you give up samsara. Is it on there? I don't see any. It just says wheel of life and then something in Tibetan, which is probably wheel of life in Tibetan. Oh, or maybe in the, it's just like one line in Tibetan. Mm -hmm. But it's like outside, it's on the little edge. Mm. Um, and then number two, you add the verse, smash the Lord of Death like an elephant squashes a reed hut. Nice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so basically anyone who with proper care practices this dharma which is Vinaya slash Dula, will be able to leave behind the wheel of rebirth and put an end to all their suffering. Because if you smash death, you smash birth at the same time. Mm-hmm. Smash birth and smash death. Yeah. So when you're out of the cycle of suffering. Well, I mean, I think the idea would is that it'd actually be a lot more pleasurable. There wouldn't be the grasping and the attachment and the aversion and, like, all this up and down that we have in our lives now. 
Um, but I think there is that idea, like, if we didn't have that roller coaster ride that we're used to, that it would be boring or something like that. Um, but that's not what the teachings say, and that's not what that description is. It's that it's this blissful paradise where um, you're just sending out emanation bodies to help people. You're hanging out in your Buddha paradise where everything's perfect and amazing and um, and there's no thinking about things. Everything's spontaneously happening. So I don't have to plan ahead and make to-do lists and calendar what's going on next week. And It's just like everything is just arising. Yeah. You know who said this? Brian told me that one, someone said that being in samsara is like being shackled, locked in a box, and thrown into a rushing river. does feel like that sometimes for yeah. sure but a lot of times it doesn't yeah but it is yeah. like when they talk about um samsara is shedding being forced to shed and take on bodies over and over again it's like oh yeah that's a violent process shedding your body and being forced to take one yeah like birth is not an easy process death not really easy and it's not that everything is in a way, everything's suffering, but it's not that there's no pleasure in, in the, world, the world that we're living in, too. We have the perfect mix of pleasure and pain where we have just enough pain to motivate us to want to get out of it and study. If we had too much pleasure, we would just be sucking up all this good karma for no reason. You know, we would just have no motivation to study anything like this or... To, to do anything different it would just be stuck in that cycle over and over okay so let's end with a short meditation it'll be pretty short because we have zero minutes left <laughs> So we'll end with the meditation. At the end, I'll cue Lauren and she'll lead the prayers. So bring your shoulders up to your ears, together behind you, and let them drop. And sit up nice and tall. like we did in the beginning, just do this mini scanning down your body and let go of tension, any worry. And feel this golden orb of light at your chest, at your heart center. And it's all of the words of the holy beings all of the wisdom and it starts to expand and fill your whole body.
this wisdom radiates out from your body and reaches out to all corners of the universe in all directions. Lifting all the unhappiness of all beings and giving them all good things. Awakening. When that light starts to withdraw back towards you, slowly, slowly. Until it comes back into just your physical body and withdraws into your heart center. This tiny ball of golden warm light. this wisdom that guides you through your day, through the rest of your night and tomorrow. And then as Lauren leads us in the prayers, which if you don't have yours handy, it's okay. Picture that you're offering your whole practice or whatever you can think of to reaching the final goal of being totally free of unhappiness so that we can show all other beings how to do the same. Rirabling she in the Gampadi Sange Shingdu Mekte Wagi Jokun Amdak Shingla Chuparsho Iram Guru Ratna Mandalakam Niryatayami Tsunami, I shall